Welcome to Thoughtfully Mindless. In this episode, my guest is Rachel Oswald. Rachel is a U.S. Navy veteran, entrepreneur, and the host of the podcast, Your Story Doesn't End Here, which I highly recommend. We talk about her time in the Navy, mental health advocacy, and more. It was a really enjoyable conversation, and I hope you enjoy it too. With that, let's welcome Rachel. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So I figured to start, we'll kind of go into your personal journey. Okay. Like, uh, what made you join the Navy originally? And how long ago was it that you actually served? Yeah, so I just separated from the Navy in 2021. So it's only been about two years. It still feels pretty fresh. I initially joined in 2012. And I had the intention of joining at that time based off of the fact that I was in a very toxic relationship at the time. I was the only one in the relationship that was working. I needed to find a different solution to be able to sustain the both of us. And so my initial thought in 2012 was, oh, well, I'll look into joining the military. At that time, quite a few branches were offering enlistment bonuses. And so it was an option that offered the insurance, the stability and all that stuff that comes alongside, you know military service. Well, after evaluating how much money I would have made as an E1, joining the military at that time, different job options, I realized that the military was not for me at that time. And and I ended up actually dropping out of the delayed entry program. Now, I was told with dropping out of the delayed entry program that I would never be able to join the Navy ever again. And I was okay with that because it was such a spur of the moment decision. And it wasn't something that I was like hell bent on doing. Um, But that same recruiter came back to me two years later and said, Hey, actually, we need people to join the Navy. And so if you're willing to join now, in this very short time period, um, it's a very short window that we are allowing people with a waiver that dropped out of the delayed entry program to join again. And so I decided again in 2014 that I was going to join the Navy. And this time I decided to pursue more of an AV or, well, actually I, I wanted to pursue a special warfare type of job. And so I was looking into either air rescue swimmer or Navy diver. And that opened up the door to the job that I actually ended up getting in the Navy, which was aviation electronics technician because air rescue swimmer was aviation, we found out that they didn't do a depth perception test on me at MEPS. And um, once they did that one test on me, it opened up all these other options for jobs. And so really joining the Navy was just kind of a spur of the moment decision based off of where I was at in life. Okay, interesting. What's your take on being a female in the military? Obviously you're you're surrounded, it's male dominated. was that hard? Was it particularly challenging? Or did you not find that too struggling? So, you know, being a female in the military has its own unique set of challenges, for sure. Um, if you look at the statistics when it comes to especially like sexual assault in the military, um, that is still something that is a huge challenge for the military and trying to tackle, you know, how do we figure out how to get beyond these things in a male dominated industry that we have females integrated into. And so what was interesting for me is when I first joined the military in 2015 is when I shipped out for boot camp. And around that time frame is when I would say the sexual assault prevention program that they had implemented a few years prior 
it was still kind of getting integrated into the military. And so the dynamic when I was in boot camp was interesting because a lot of the male leadership felt like they they were walking on eggshells around women because they didn't want to say the wrong thing or portray the wrong attitude and then get accused of sexual harassment or sexual assault. And so I actually felt like right off the get-go, just in boot camp alone, that they were not as hard on the females as they were the males because they were walking on eggshells. And so you could physically see the difference in the way that they treated the two genders just going through boot camp. And um, I had an integrated division. So, you know, the males slept on one side, one birthing on one side of the hallway, and the females slept in a birthing on the other side of the hallway. And then as we would do our activities throughout the day, we were together. But if and there were some times that we were separated into our birthings for specific things, sometimes we would, you know, we would go over to the other birthing to do like a PT exercise or something like that. But um, I remember at the end of boot camp, one of the chiefs asked the females like, hey, were we too hard on you? Were we easy on you? And a lot of the females had this consensus of you were way too easy on us. And they didn't straight up come out and say, oh, well, it's because of this. But as I kind of started to learn more about the history of what had happened in the early 2000s. And, you know, as women start to get more integrated into different roles in the military, it makes sense as to why they acted that way. And that was kind of a theme throughout a lot of the training commands, especially because they like to be more careful in the training commands and make sure that the instructors and students and, um, you know, drill instructors versus recruits aren't crossing that threshold of something that could be considered sexual harassment or sexual assault. The dynamic when I got into the fleet past training was different because that's when it seemed like um, it, it was almost the complete opposite, right? Like going to my first command, finding out that the way that males and females worked together, um, there was a lot of very inappropriate things that took place. And like my work center that I was in, I was one of the two females in my work center at the first one that I was in. And um, it, what I've found on my podcast in talking to a lot of other women that have served is that women get told that you're either going to be, can I curse on here? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay. Either the bitch, the slut, or um, the, uh, I don't remember what the other word was, but, but women are told you have to fall in a certain parameter of female if you're going to make it. And so you find that as women leaders make it up in the ranks, a lot of women do create this kind of shell that really just falls downhill, right? Because they're training other women to be that same way. And it really is doing a disservice to females in the military because there is such a strong divide still. Mm. I've even talked to men in the military who are like, oh, if a woman's pregnant, she needs to get kicked out. Um, doesn't belong in our military. It's still a very controversial topic the idea of combat, women serving in combat roles, or, you know, even on submarines. And, and having served, I can say that that divide is still very blatantly obvious in a lot of areas of the military. Yeah, I mean, I can understand that to some degree, right? Because uh, when we talk about militaries doing the wrong thing, not the U.S. military necessarily, but um, casualties of war, it's always mentioned women and children being harmed, right? So. I can understand that to some degree, whether would that be that stigma around women and right. um, combat. Are there any differences in what men and women can do in the military at this point? Um, 
You know, I obviously don't know every single role and every single branch. I think that they have pretty much equalized a lot of things at this point. When I first joined the military, they still had those rules, those rules about, you know, like combat submarines and all that stuff, which I didn't even know a lot of those things when I served. Like, I didn't know that women can serve on submarines until a few years ago. Um, so I can't fully answer that question and say that, yes, it's fully equal, but I did see a lot of changes when I served, like right before I joined the military, quite literally a few months before women used to have to cut their hair short to join the Navy. They changed that so that they don't have to anymore. I saw some changes to different hairstyles that were allowed in the military. I saw changes in uniforms to make them so that the women's uniform isn't you know, different than the men's uniform. Uh, there are still instances uniform wise New York, where women can still wear skirts if they prefer to. Um, so there are those minor differences that still exist, I think on a preference basis. But as far as like, you know, a woman not being able to do something in the military, I think that they got rid of all that, but I cannot answer that for sure. Um, with your deployments, you've been on three deployments uh where were those at yeah so i went on the, technically they're called detachments because they weren't full-blown you know deployments but the squadron that i was at was ha maintained a global presence around the world and so they're constantly swapping out these small crews of people that would help run these missions with the aircraft that i was working on which is the ep3 aries aircraft and so i went to bahrain two different times uh, three to four months each time. And then I went to Okinawa, Japan for uh, a detachment. And then I went on a small one month detachment to Misawa, Japan. I don't really count that one because we didn't really do anything. But but yeah, Japan twice technically and then Bahrain two times. Okay. With You said uh, the women in your unit. I don't know if I'm using the right word. Is unit the right word? Um, it, 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 interchangeable. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, so the women felt like they were too easy. The the leaders were too easy. Leadership is too easy on them. Do Does anyone feel like that negatively impacted them down the road? Because my understanding is a lot of like boot camp is supposed to be really hard to prepare you for what might be just as hard, if not harder later on. Did them going easy on the women have a negative effect at all? Yeah, I don't know for sure. And I never really asked the other women that I served alongside in boot camp specifically if I felt like that affected them. I think that, you know, boot camp is really the foundation for everything, right? And so when I graduated boot camp, I felt a little bit of disappointment and that I didn't feel like it was the hardest thing that I'd ever done in my life. I really had this expectation going in of this is going to be the most challenging thing that I'm ever going to do in my entire life. And I didn't get that that satisfaction of being able to say that when I completed it, I felt like they pushed a lot of people through and helped them make sure that they could pass boot camp on things that people weren't mastering, like marching, or uh, we were very big on folding and, and following directions, like doing things a specific way um, to really mostly prepare people for life on a ship. And I didn't ever serve on a ship. So It'd be interesting to hear how the people that did serve on the ship, if they felt that boot camp really served them well as a foundation. Um, I think that for me specifically, it was just that idea of the fact that like I didn't have that challenging, broke me down and changed me foundation that I anticipated and um, and I wanted more out of it. So that was kind of the, the weird dynamic there. Um, as far as 
you know, how it affected me. I mean, I think boot camp still still changes us. The military lifestyle, I would say, is probably the more appropriate way to put that changes anyone that joins the military. But um, yeah, I, I think that had they been harder on me or others, I can't really speak for others, but me specifically during boot camp, that um, the A, they would have not only been harder on me, but they would have been harder on the group as a whole. And I think it would have created more quality people joining. Um, I do think that that definitely as a whole affects the quality of the people that you see in the military. But I think that's males and females alike. Um, yeah. You hear the term that they're getting softer and uh, and it sounds very cliche, but it's true. They are getting a lot softer on people that are joining the military in an effort to make the military more like corporate America. And they told me that they're trying to make the military more like corporate America when I joined. But there's a reason that the two sectors are different. So um, it'll be interesting to see how it continues to affect the military as a whole. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned military life changes you. Um, I can't remember who said this, but I, I, it was a video or an interview I watch or something like that. But somebody said, if you're creative, don't join the military because you will lose that creativity. Is there truth to that or, or not really? You know, I, I can't, I can't say that that's really a black and white, simply answered question because I served alongside people that were creatives um, outside of, outside of the work environment. Um, I served alongside people who are, they're still serving and they're creatives. I think that the, the understanding is that yes, you join the military so that it can break you down and make everyone the same and confirm conform. Now the majority of the military is very much like that, right? But you still see people's personalities shine through and you see every, every single place, every command, they're all different. So in some places, yes, you will see those stricter environments where maybe it's a little more toxic and people are really struggling. Then you'll see other environments where they are more collaborative and and people are free to share their ideas and opinions. And sometimes in the same area as leaders change, you'll see that dynamic change too. So that's not really so much of a simple black and white answer. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think creativity is tied to openness in personality and and usually the those personality traits are pretty pretty stable throughout your lifetime. So I can see that not necessarily being able to be pushed out of you, but maybe if you're like lower on creativity and it's not like a bigger part of your personality, maybe that dies out a little bit easier in a military yeah. setting. Yeah, it's, I mean, so definitely, I think a lot of people when they first join the military, because it's like, you're kind of trying to figure out where your place is, you're still trying to learn a completely new job field. It's everything's changing, everything's new. I think that the last thing on people's mind when they first join is creativity in themselves. Yeah. They're trying to figure out how do I fit into this unit, learn my job, I have to learn things very quickly and pick up on things very quickly, because that's just the pace of the military in general. Uh, but I think as people stay in the military, then it, they could go one of two directions, right? They could either continue to be that conforming, I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to do, show up and be very militaristic, or they could let their personality shine through. Um, it, I think to allude to what you're talking about, a lot of the people that were kind of more free spirited and didn't really um, fall under that umbrella of what the military is. They're kind of their own people. A lot of them really don't stay in. 
a lot of them do their four years and they get out and um, and that's okay. Uh, it's really unfortunate in some instances because I did work alongside some people that were very good at their job, but they just weren't the rule following type of people. They wanted to do things their own way. And while they're very good at what they did, they understood that the military lifestyle just wasn't for them because it is very restrictive. I mean, when you join the military, you can't leave within a 300 mile radius of where you live without asking for permission. That includes on the weekends. And that includes on like long holiday weekends, stuff like that, days off. Um, and then there's the the physical standards, right? Like you can't have tattoos in certain places. You can't have your hair looking a certain way. If you're a female, your nails can't be certain colors, certain lengths, certain shapes. And so you, when you think about, you know, your stereotypical creative person, they want to be able to have the freedom to be able to do things for themselves. So I could see kind of where that falls in what you heard. Yeah. I, I've never been a part of the military, but when I was younger, I did consider it at, at one point. Um, and I think I would have struggled in that atmosphere quite a bit. Um, especially I, I heard on one of your episodes about the alcohol um, use, uh, smoking and drinking. I'm assuming you're, you meant smoking cigarettes, right? in that atmosphere since you're being drug tested yes. um yeah but uh, it was a pretty common um i think you said you didn't fall into that as much but basically everyone around you is just drinking after work um yes. when you're deployed and stuff like that um how much does that figure into mental health in your opinion oh i think that's the, a huge part of mental health that's not being talked about um you know a lot of people a lot of people will come into the military, obviously, with their own shit, right? Like, a lot of people already come in, they smoked cigarettes before the military, or maybe they drank before the military. But you start to see, especially on deployments, when mental health for the group, I would say, is at a lower um, level than it would be, you know, back on home base or... Um, you know, in a less stressful environment or maybe with better leadership, you see a lot of people that are smoking cigarettes and a lot of people that are excessively drinking because it's one thing to get off work and have a drink and then settle down for the night, right? But it's another thing when people are like, I can't wait to get off work so I can get fucked up tonight because today was a really stressful day. And it becomes a coping mechanism and and you see it physically um, in not only the times when people are drinking, but in the conversations they're having during work before they're drinking. And the amount of people that I know that when we went on detachments, we would get per diem. So we would make extra money for being out there. The amount of people that spent all their money on alcohol is just absolutely insane. And it's not being addressed. I think a lot a lot in part because there's a decent amount of money that's made off of service members who drink from a business perspective, the, um, the exchanges on the base where, you know, you can buy alcohol and snacks and stuff. They make a lot of money off of these people that do have drinking problems, but it's not seen as alcohol isn't really seen as a drug as much as like marijuana would be um, yeah. cigarettes, the same aren't really seen as a drug as much as like marijuana or shrooms or something, you know, anything else that is illegal that a service member might want to do. And, and what's interesting to me is 
Now, speaking of marijuana, you know, I brought up the idea of CBD to the chief of naval operations when I was still serving active duty because CBD, when it first became mainstream, there were options that had 0% THC in it. And the military was not interested in allowing service members to use CBD or other options outside of like things that are really incredibly harmful for our bodies, like, you know, prescription drugs, not a lot of people respond well to that. I know I don't respond well to ibuprofen very well, and that's heavily, heavily, probably overprescribed in the military. Yeah. Um, alcohol is seen as, you know, it, it's okay because it's legal as long as you're over the age of 21. Smoking cigarettes, okay, as long as you're over the age of, I think it's 21 now. Um, and so it, it's really sad to see the people in the military struggling like they do and knowing that alcohol is, is used as a um, unhealthy coping mechanism. And we're not having these conversations about other ways to help them cope so that alcohol isn't being used in an unhealthy way. It's, it's really interesting, even, I mean, just for civilians who use alcohol, I, I used to be a heavy drinker. Um, and it increased over the years too. I'm, I'm 38 now. And when I was 21, it was just fun. And then when I was working on the road in my uh, late 20s, then it was more of a boredom thing. Um, and it really, when you go through a, a major life event or something like that, when like a breakup, let's say, the tendency is for people to drink more to increase their alcohol consumption. And in the end, you don't actually process what you're going through. You you end up in oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes people end up in a worse situation or just as bad a situation uh, with their next partner or whatever it might be, whatever their life event might be, because they they never really process anything. They just kind of numbed, you know, and you can do yeah. that with other things too, but I'm, I'm a proponent of marijuana in, um, you know, reasonable quantities. And then uh, like psychedelics, I think can be very beneficial to people, especially with people with mental health issues, stuff like that. And we've, uh, we've seen the tide turning on that a lot just over the last like five to 10 years. Um, and it's, it's wild, especially with the older generation, how alcohol is viewed. They really do believe that alcohol and marijuana are two completely different things. Like uh, some people, I remember getting in an argument with somebody. She was actually a couple years younger than me, but this is, I was probably in my mid twenties and I smoked already back then a little bit. And she insisted that uh, alcohol was not a drug. And I was like, are you, you're kidding? Right. And she, she got like, angry about it she's like no they're not the same thing i'm like it is a drug so it's you know I mean, tylenol. caffeine's a drug yeah yeah and you mentioned ibuprofen and ibuprofen like i don't even take that anymore because i just it takes a toll on you and um i my understanding is it messes up your butt gut, or <laughs> gut biome uh quite a bit and yeah and tylenol is riskier than most people realize too so yeah, when you first go to boot camp, they will get everyone. There's like a medical first few days. They're called P days. It's uh, a medical or time when you know you you figure out all your medical stuff, right? And they'll 
take all the females and they'll put them through this line to go talk to the doctor and they'll be like, do you get cramps when you're menstruating? Yes, a lot of women do. And then they'll be like, okay. And then they'll prescribe an 800 milligram ibuprofen pill in case you get cramps when you are menstruating as a female in the military. And it's like, you know, 800 milligrams is a very high dosage. When I am buying an over-the-counter ibuprofen, if I have any kind of pain, I'm not starting at 800 milligrams. I will start at a low dosage and, you know, I'll work my way up if needed. But it's insane because boot camp is where I started when I was taking the 800 milligram ibuprofen. I started to get really bad stomach pains that would wake me up in the middle of the night, like sharp pains. And it was only when I took the ibuprofen and I now cannot take NSAIDs. Um, I now have irritable bowel syndrome. And I don't know if it's all related to what they prescribed me when I was in boot camp, but I didn't have those issues before. And now I do have these issues. And so it's, it's interesting that we're okay. And this is probably not just the mill. I don't, I don't know. I don't remember any civilian doctors ever prescribed me like a high dosage of ibuprofen for period cramps, but um, it's an interesting conversation. Yeah. I know of civilians getting prescribed ibuprofen, like 800 milligrams just for different pains and stuff that they didn't feel opioids were necessary for. I've actually never understood it anyway, because you buy a bottle of ibuprofen, they're 200 milligrams each. I don't know why taking four of those versus one prescription one is any different anyway. But I think 800 is like the most you're supposed to take in any four hour period or six hour period. I don't know what it is, but it's, it is kind of wild that, that, that is just easily prescribed or like, yeah, yeah, that's just the standard. Or I think the 325 milligram Tylenol is just the standard. And I had a foreman one time tell me like, I do not recommend ibuprofen because it does, it ruins your gut. And uh, they don't talk about the nutritional side of things. I remember I asked one time a corpsman, I said, what are some foods that I can take that are anti-inflammatory as opposed to taking a drug that's anti-inflammatory? And they couldn't even answer that question for me. So, yeah. Well, I don't, if if you don't mind me asking, how old are you about? I'm 30. Okay. So you're a, bit, a little bit younger than me. Um, When I was younger, my parents my family was not like a nutrition conscious family at all. And I look back on like the shit that I ate, the shit that we ate as kids is amazing. Like cereal. Oh yeah. When you think of cereal, it's just carbohydrates and sugar. And uh, I remember in one of your shorter episodes, you mentioned like how important nutrition is for mental health um, uh, from what you've heard and everything. And I agree with that, but it's, it's kind of crazy when you don't grow up in a household that recognizes that, that you have to kind of learn that when you're older, if you learn it at all. And then uh, you have to break those habits of you know, sugar addiction. And um, I, I haven't broken that habit myself, by the way. <laughs> it's a hard one. But yeah, I mean, we live in the information age now, right? Like yeah. we have access to more information now than we had when we were younger. And so you know, we don't know what we don't know. So I get it. You know, we kind of if we look at the history of foods and mental health and all these things that we're talking about right now. And it seems like 
the 70s and 80s were kind of like the experimental time period where they're like, oh, let's try this. Oh, let's try this. Oh, well, this can make life easier. And, you know, you look even at the depression and in TV dinners and how those were introduced to the world. And now we're kind of undoing all these things as more information comes out about, oh, well, they're not actually healthy for you. They're just convenient. And so um, it's definitely created a different world. Yeah. And not even not having like nutritionally conscious parents or anything like that and a nutrition conscious family, but just the the stuff that we were exposed to as children, like the food pyramid of milk and cheese being on there, like milk and cheese are not essential food groups at all. But yeah. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. And I have my um my daughter now who'll be two in January. And um, you know, I I've learned a lot nutritionally, even about just like what humans need for dairy. And a lot of parents are going back to the raw milk that, you know, humans way, way, way back in the day, raw milk was normal. Yeah. Now they're like, Oh no, it's it's not normal. It could have bacteria in it and so it's uh the nutrition thing is really it's such a rabbit hole to get into and it's really cool but um it's it's interesting how if we go back to what is biologically appropriate for us how does that affect people's mental health how does that affect well-being why are we not taking organizations like the government and focusing on giving the optimal nutrition to these people that are out here doing for in some branches not the Navy, but in some branches, a lot of really physical exercise and activities and have to be in peak shape to be able to perform. When you look at the Marines and the Army that are out there, boots on the ground, and and have to be in peak physical shape. And a lot of these guys across all the branches are living off of energy drinks and vending machine snacks. Yeah. And so, you know, how's that affecting things? And that's really not a conversation that's being had either. I went to a um, mental health, uh, it was a suicide prevention forum a few weeks ago in, uh, I live in Washington. And, um, one of the big conversations from the kids mental health standpoint was what are we feeding our kids in schools? Because if they are not getting an appropriate amount of vitamin D or if they're eating processed foods, then it really can affect just from even that young age, um, how they perform mentally, physically, emotionally, all these things combined. So it really is an interesting conversation. Yeah. And with the, uh, it, it is to go back to the alcohol a little bit. It's interesting because military are considered people that are in great shape. Um, the, the physical aspect of being in the military is a, a really big part. You know, you do PT even when you're, um, when you are deployed, correct? Um, we're supposed to. Okay. <laughs> so the Navy, the Navy, it really just depends on where you are. Okay. East Coast versus West Coast, two different dynamics. Where I was at, we really never PT'd. We would maybe PT like once a month was mm. even good. Okay. Um, but the mission always comes first. So work, work was always put above physical stuff. But I do, when I was in Bahrain, army was on that base and every morning at like five, six in the morning, they were running and doing PT. So okay. it just kind of depends on the, the unit and the branch of service. Yeah. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't think alcohol would be not necessarily encouraged, but just dismissed as, as not a big deal. And I do wonder if like the leadership in the military kind of 
looks the other way to a certain degree because it's easier than having to deal with mental issues. Like among the people that you're leading to just, all right, yeah, go, go drink it off, you know, like yeah, just yeah. go forget about it. And and I worked, I remember when I was in Bahrain and the same thing happened to other areas. There were times when they would make the entire base go dry mm. because of an alcohol related incident that would happen. It happens a lot in Japan because a lot of the Marines have alcohol related incidents in Japan and they'll make the entire base go dry. And, um, you know, I remember there was a specific chief that I worked with that was so addicted to alcohol that he was taking the apple juice from the galley and he was fermenting his mm. own alcohol in his room um that that is a huge problem that needs yeah. to be addressed because people are now relying on this as like hey i can't make it through the day without alcohol and so yeah i think they do look the other way i think you're absolutely right because it's enough to keep the military functioning right if we take yeah. away the main coping mechanism for a lot of people. Well, now these people aren't going to function enough to serve in the military. So now we have to address the deeper root of the problem, which is going to cost money and it's going to bring up conversations they don't want to have. Yeah. What, what do you feel kept you from falling into the alcohol trap? I would say the main thing is that when I was in a school, I got in trouble. Um, with an alcohol related incident. So when I was in a school for the eight month, I want to say that it was, I was drinking pretty excessively. Okay. And this was right outside of boot camp, um, where, you know, obviously you, you were very, we were in a very strict environment for eight weeks. So when I got to Pensacola, I was drinking quite a bit. I had gained quite a bit of weight. Um, I was, I, I don't want to say that I was an alcoholic, but I was definitely drinking more than I ever had in my entire life. And it got to the point where I had gotten in trouble for buying alcohol for people under the age of 21. They were Marines. I was Navy. So um, the the whole non-judicial punishment process um, was really just kind of like me against me because they couldn't bring in Marines to interrogate them or ask them questions. But for me, that was a huge eye opener because in the Navy, if you get two alcohol-related incidents, it is supposed to be zero tolerance, and you are done with the second one. It does not matter what it is. If I was wrong place, wrong time, and someone had alcohol in in the equation, um, I could have gotten kicked out of the Navy for that. So really, the main thing that kept me from falling into that trap was the fact that I knew that I could get in trouble and lose my job if I was even in the wrong place, wrong time. So I avoided all situations related to alcohol. Okay. You mentioned in, in your podcast that you, I can't remember if you said you weren't suicidal, but you did have an incident where you, I, I couldn't quite understand what you were saying. You, you like put your neck up against chains or something until your face got purple. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when I was in Japan, I had hit my lowest point mentally when I was in the military. And um, I had a really, really bad leader that I was out there on that detachment with. And um, the LPO or leading petty officer of that detachment also was not great. And, uh, and I think a lot of people were just not in a great mental state through that detachment. So it was just kind of hard all the way around for everyone. And so when it came to... Um, that we were doing an evolution where we were, well, there's a turret that sits on the front of the plane 
and uh, it's this camera that comes down from the nose. And one of my jobs as an aviation electronics technician was to do maintenance on that turret. And I think we were getting ready to change it out with a completely new turret. And um, the chains were still attached to the plane because uh, the plane wasn't flying anymore for the day. And we'd usually chain it down at night because it got pretty windy in Japan. And so I remember that I had gone to the side of the plane and these chains were right by the nose of the plane directly when you're looking to the front of the plane directly to the right of it. And I'd taken the chains and I'd wrapped them around my neck and I was leaning into it. And I actually have a picture of myself on my phone in that moment. And I don't know why I took a picture of myself, but I keep that picture now as just kind of like a reminder of that point in my life. Um, and I don't go review it all the time, but it's... It, I think it's important to understand where we come from and what we've been through. And so mm -hmm. I do hang on to that, but my face literally looked purple in that picture. And I remember one of the, I think it was my LPO had come over and asked me a question. I don't remember what he asked me, uh, but I remember that after the question was asked, he like laughed a little bit and then walked away. And there was probably 10 other people that were standing by the nose of the plane because this evolution required a few bodies to help move that turret. It was pretty heavy. And, and I just remember thinking like, man, I could take my life right now and no one would even bat an eye. And, and I just, it was such a profound experience for me knowing that I'm on a flight line. There's not only people driving by from other squadrons and other groups that can see me, there's other aircraft around and it, well, it's not like it was super crowded, but there were definitely people. But there was people five feet away from me that didn't say a single word. And these were the same people that would ask us every day, like, how's everyone doing? And when I would say I'm not okay, they were just like, oh, well, what do you need? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, you know, I, don't, I don't remember exactly what I would say, but they would just be like, yeah, sorry, can't help you out. Um, and and I really felt un completely unsupported in that environment. I'm, I'm not sure why I didn't move forward with it. Um, and I ended up stopping. It's not like I had a specific thought that was like, oh, you know, I'm going to not take my life because of this person or that. Uh, but for some reason, I stopped. Um, and, and I just kind of pushed through to the end of that detachment. Um, one thing I've noticed about myself is that when I am in a more depressive state, I'll typically when I'll sleep in a little more and I'll care less about the things that I'm doing. And I noticed a lot of that on that detachment. And instead of reacting in a caring manner of, Hey, how can we help you? How can we support you? They just wrote me up. I got in trouble. Um, and they, they saw me as a, a person who didn't care and who was slacking rather than seeing the pattern of my behavior where I was very motivated when I first got to the squadron and I hit this incredibly low point mentally in my career. So uh, it was just kind of that like overarching thing of, you know, people don't pay attention to people. And, and I think that has a big part in people that actually do go through with taking their lives. Were the people that were asking you that were five feet away, but also asking you daily leading up to that, how are you doing? What do you need? Stuff like that. Are these uh, older people or are they peers? Like, around the same age um you know i i never really asked what their ages were but i think that like i know that the one individual was an e6 i had made e5 on that detachment um there weren't a lot of it's a when you talk about like older people in the military a lot of them typically 
are, you know, your higher enlisted or your officers, because Mm -hmm. a lot of people join the military when they're younger and just kind of grow up in the military. And so as they get older, they're a higher rank. Every once in a while, you'll see someone that's lower ranking that's older because someone decides to join the military later in life, but it's a little more rare to see. Um, so these people were, you know, probably a little older than me, probably mid thirties. Um, but not, not like way, way older than me. Um, now I will also say that this, the same individual, um, he was our LPO on that detachment. He, every single night when they would drink would get so wasted that he would run off with the entire bottle of alcohol into the woods. Cause there was like a wooded area next to where we stayed. And we wouldn't see him till the next morning. And that was like, that was the epitome of leadership on that detachment was, you know, people that were alcoholics, they had their own trauma and and issues that they were dealing with. And they were just kind of thrust in that to that position because, oh, well, you're an E6. So we're going to make you the LPO, not because we think that you're an incredible leader, but the military leadership model is very much learn as you go learn from the last guy and, and help you don't mess it up. Learn from your mistakes, figure it out as you go. They don't actually set people up to be successful. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. So would you say there's generally a lack of support for mental health related issues in the military? At least from what you've seen in, in the yeah, movie? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, they're trying. I will yeah. give credit where credit is due. I think they are trying, but I think they're taking the wrong approach to trying. And I say that because I think that they, a lot of the, the approaches that the military takes to try to solve things are very compartmentalized approaches of, oh, well, like, for example, the base that I live next to, they just started a green ribbon program, which is, you know, military members who are active duty will take a suicide prevention training. Once they go through their training, they slap a patch on their shoulder that has a green ribbon that lets people know, hey, this person's a safe person to talk to. But we still haven't addressed the overarching issue of the culture of the military, which if you if you throw training and training and training at people over and over and over, yeah, that's great and all, but eventually training turns into another checklist item, right? So what they'll do is they'll just be like, oh, well, we got to get suicide prevention training done for the year, for the month. So let's just make sure that we get this box checked. And then, you know, eventually, you know, people still continue to take their lives and and the, the pattern still continues to happen because we haven't gotten to the root issue, which is the culture. The culture of the military is that, people at certain ranks do what they want to do and they don't care. And then you, you have these people that, um, you know, are just learning from the last crappy leader who learned from the last crappy leader. We're not addressing how do we create better leaders? How do we create a better environment? Because if we did that, we could scratch all these programs and all these trainings that we're trying to do. And, and it would just naturally, I mean, you're still going to have your outliers, but it naturally would fix a lot of these problems that we're having, because I do think that it goes down to leadership and culture every single time. Yeah. And the reason I asked if, uh, though, one people were older is because it does seem like the older generations in our, uh, society don't look at depression and mental health the same way. It's, you know, no, you just tough it out. You just deal with it. And to some degree, I mean, they they have a point like when you're struggling, when you have 
needs that you have to have met. You don't have time to really focus on your mental health. And mental health is kind of a luxury, but nonetheless, it is a real, real thing. Depression is very real. Anxiety is real. Um, PTSD is real. And people in the military probably encounter mental health issues at a greater rate, especially, you know, if, if you're put in situations where you see death, you see friends potentially die, you see other people die, whether you know the person or not, seeing death. I've, Like I said, I've never been in the military, but I have read a lot of stuff about war um, because I think, I think uh, most people don't know what they're going to do in a in an in intense situation. Um, and Jordan Peterson, uh, if you've ever listened to him, he'll talk about this in his psychology lectures. Where most people, they well, the way that he taught his psychology lectures was he wanted people to realize that if you were in Nazi Germany, more than likely you would be one of the Nazis for most people. And I really do think that's true. And I think if you expose yourself in in a safe way to reality, to the horrors of war and, and all, all that kind of stuff, um, you at least get an idea of where you'll be in a situation like that. And for me personally, I'd, I'd like to feel more confident that I would make the right decision and in, you know, intense situations, which hopefully I will, if hopefully I will never have to, but you know, hopefully I wouldn't in an intense situation like that. And, um, war is a very ugly thing in general. Um, I'd imagine so when you're joining the military, most people that join the military are young. So you were, let's say you were around 21, 20 yeah, when you joined? Yeah, 22 okay. when I joined. Looking back, um, you're 30 years old now. Would you do it again? Like at, like if, if you were faced with that decision again, would you join and do it all over again? Because um, I've heard different, I've heard mixed, like I've heard some military people say they would. And I've heard a lot of military people say they wouldn't if they had a chance. I think I would. And um, you, if you had asked me that question a year or two ago, the answer might have been different. But the reason that I say I would is because being in the military created a lot of who I am today. Um, yes, there were negatives to it, but there was a lot of positives that created who I am today that came out of me being in the military. I learned a lot of really good lessons when I was in the military. I met a lot of incredible people. And I think that the impact that I'm able to create on the world now, it would not exist if I did not join the military. So um, knowing what I know now, I would have taken a different approach to being in the military. But it is what it is. You know, everything I truly believe happens for a reason. But um yeah, I, I I think I would do it again if I was faced with, hey, go back. You can choose a different path for your life. Because yeah. I was living in Iowa before I joined the military. And I don't think I would have taken the risk to even like leave the state at any point soon. 
had I not joined the Navy or really any branch of the military. And so, so many opportunities have opened up in my life just from taking that step to join. Then it wasn't like, you know, I joined the military and, you know, the recruiter reasons that they give you that like, oh, life opens up for you because you join the military. But there was all the experiences that came as a result of joining that make me grateful for that experience in my life. Um, you mentioned the recruiter and it, it, I've spoken to recruiters when I was younger. Um, they all want to sell you this beautiful future, uh, that you're going to have by joining the military. And for, I've, I've seen the military really benefit people's lives. Um, but I've seen other people not benefit so much from it and not get all the things that they were promised. Um, I would say, or one of the things I've heard, and I'm wondering if you would agree with it, like if you're going to talk to a recruiter, um, don't count on anything unless it's in writing. Is that true? No. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, with that, do you feel like most people who join the military, especially since this is, you know, people are joining between 18 and 25 years old, I would say is probably pretty typical. Um, and as you get older, it's a little less likely unless you're going after school and trying to be an officer, I'd imagine. Um, do you think most people that join the military understand fully what they're getting into when they join? Or do you think that's kind of something that they have to learn as they go? Yeah, I think that most people probably don't fully understand what they're getting into. Now, you get the people that join and they do all the research on the jobs. They talk to people that are in. They have a friend that knows someone that's in and they they get more of a full picture. Um, and I can't speak to today's military because I'm not currently serving. And so maybe it is different for people that are joining now. I know they're really struggling with getting recruiting numbers up right now. Is that related to mental health, climate? I don't know. Um, but I can say that, you know, you really any experience in life, you don't fully know what you're getting into until you're doing it. Yeah. You can do all the research in the world. You can think you know everything, but every environment is going to be different in some way, shape or form. So no, you don't really fully know until you experience it for yourself. And that's okay. Yeah. What did... So you had your your own mental health struggles in the Navy. At one point, did you get the idea for a podcast? Um, at what point did you want to help other people share their stories and, and have that be an important aspect of your life even after the military? So in 2019, right after I got back from that Japan deployment where I had you know, didn't t- attempted to take my life, um, I had created a petition on change.org to the McPon or Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy. And in that petition, I had said, hey, there's issues with mental health in the military. This is what my suggestions are. Uh, the petition really isn't everything that I sent him because I actually created a like two, three page word document that had suggestions for this is what we can work on now. This is what we can work on medium term. And these are suggestions for a long term solution for mental health in the military. And then I attached some stories from other people that I had spoken with that had a specific experience in the military related to mental health. Now, the story part is where the wheel started turning for the podcast, because when I created this petition and before I sent anything out to the McPon, I reached out on different Facebook groups and different networks and said, hey, 
I'm reaching out to the McPawn to try to change mental health in the military. What suggestions would you give if you were able to suggest to a higher up in the military of changing something in the Navy? And all these stories started flooding into me in my DMs, in my email, text messages, people saying, hey, this is what happened to me. And keep in mind, this was not just enlisted. There were officers that were reaching out to me, people of all ranks that were saying, thank you for finally being a voice for us. Um, I haven't ever been able to share my story or I haven't shared my story in so long. And, and this is what happened to me. Thank you so much. And so that's where my, my brain started thinking, well, there's all these stories out there that people have. They feel that they don't have a voice. How can I help create a platform for these people to share their stories? And I had never been a huge podcaster. I really, for years, didn't even know what a podcast was. I knew they existed. I didn't really know what it was. So my first thought was, okay, well, maybe I'll start a YouTube channel. Well, when I started to look into YouTube and realized that starting a YouTube channel, the video, the editing, it's a lot of work, um, I decided not to. Well, I had a friend that had a personal development podcast in Australia, and he had been very successful with it. So he decided he was going to do a course on how to launch podcasts successfully. And his course was like 150 bucks. So I was like, well, I guess I'll learn and see if it's a good fit. And in that, I decided that I was going to launch my podcast. And so I started very, very much like taking action is better than nothing. Yeah, I created my own podcast artwork. I just bought a cheap mic off of Amazon. And then I started to reach out to people and said, hey, would you be willing to share your story on this podcast? And people were very willing to share their stories. And people were very excited to hear these stories. And, um, and, and that's kind of where I... I saw the necessity of giving people a platform to speak their truth and to have a voice. Um, but it did really start with just that simple petition and reaching out and asking people for suggestions and, and hearing their stories from that standpoint. Is the petition still active? It is still active. It hasn't had a lot of signatures lately. So the McPawn switched positions. I want to say it was this year. So. Russell Smith was the McPawn when I had initially initiated the petition. He responded to me via email and then really nothing happened that I tangibly saw as far as like a big overhaul of mental health in the military. Now it is, I think James Honea, I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly, is the McPawn. And unfortunately, because I'm not active duty anymore, I don't have access to his email address to be mm. able to route that peti petition directly to him. Um, He's done some good things that I've seen to try to make some culture changes, mainly on the chief's level, um, because that's really who the McPawn is head of is the chief's mess. But um, I haven't been able to continue that um, petition at the same strength that it had when it first started. But it is still out there. It does still exist. And people do still sign it occasionally. And and hopefully that just adds to that voice that we need for mental health changes in the Navy. Can you elaborate on what a, what a McPawn is? Yeah, so a McPawn is the Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy that is the highest enlisted member of the Navy and works out of the Pentagon. So when you look at like a... Um, when you look at the chain of command, you have, you know, your lower enlisted, your E1, E2, E3... E4 is kind of that transition. Junior, junior enlisted um, is kind of E5 and below. Your 
higher enlisted is where E6 to like E7, E8, E9. And then when you hit master chief, I'm trying to remember. So E7 is chief, E8 is senior chief, and then E9 is master chief. And so master chief isn't necessarily the McPawn, but the McPawn is chosen. And I don't know the whole process of choosing the McPawn, but they're like the head honcho of the enlisted. And so, um, you know, when you get into other leadership roles that are working out of the Pentagon and in D.C., a lot of them are officers like the chief, you know, think chief naval officer. Um, you got like some admirals and stuff up there. But the McPawn is like the highest for the enlisted side of things. Okay. Now, what were some of the uh, the bigger changes that you were requesting in that petition? Um, so I don't remember exactly everything that was in that letter. I still have it saved on my computer, but it was pretty extensive on saying like, you know, it was extensive, but it was simplified and saying like, Hey, you know, right off the bat, we could do trainings for people. Um, you know, understanding that like there's more to it than just hiring more psychologists and psychiatrists. Um, I, I want to say that I can't remember everything that everyone suggested in that letter because I did take a compilation of other mm. people's experiences, understanding that my experience is just one small minute sector mm. of the military and that people that have served on a ship or people that have served in submarines, they're going to have a different experience and they're going to have different needs for mental health. There's also the reservist side of things, which I've never experienced. And so um, I don't exactly remember all the changes that I suggested in that letter. Um, and I'm happy to see if I can find it in my computer and send it your way if you wanted to review that letter and see yeah, all the sure things that I did suggest. And, and you know, even now, suggestions now might be different than they were back then because it's been almost 10 years since then. And what's needed in the military now is going to be different than what was needed in the military back then. So um, I do often ask my guests on my show, like, what would you have needed what would have been helpful for you? And I think the main theme is that people just want support. People want um, people to care about them. Um, yes, having programs in place is great too. And yes, finding you know what works for you individually, mental health wise is great too. But um, it really goes back to that culture piece. And, and how do you change a culture of an entire organization? Well, I personally think that that starts with leadership yeah. and and training people on how to actually be leaders and and that's something that's tangible and something that can be done right because we know that there are leadership trainers like Tony Robbins, John C Maxwell that do this for a living and and we know that the military has money and a budget to be able to train leaders. I know of nonprofit organizations and other organizations there's one called the Enlisted Leadership Foundation. I want to say it's called I usually mess up their name. Um, but they actively work with training better leaders that are in the E5 and E6 roles of the military. Mm. So there's things out there, but it, it, the investment isn't being made into those things. A lot of the investment in certain areas like San Diego, they have a, a walk-in mental health clinic. Well, that's very reactive and it's needed. And yes, thank you for having that because they've gotten very good feedback for having just a walk-in clinic there. Um, but I don't think that the military is doing everything it can to really send that message to active duty and reservists of, Hey, we care about your mental health. We're going to do something to make it better. Yeah. And there's, I'd imagine there's a stigma around it too, right? Like if you seek mental health, you might be looked at 
as weak by your peers, even if they have mental issue, mental health issues themselves too. Some people don't, you know, people find weakness in others that, that is something they're struggling with themselves too quite often. Um, after, after the military, so you've been out a few years, what are, what are the conditions after the military? I know you said, uh, you were looking at the VA at one point and they said, if you're suicidal, you can get in right away. But if you're not suicidal, it takes 30 days. And and you made the point like, well, what if you're not suicidal, but 30 days is too much? Like you don't, 30 days when you're having serious mental health issues, things can change quick and uh, you could become suicidal within 30 days if you're, if you're struggling deeply, like is, is the, the landscape for mental health worse after, or is it worse during your service? I think it's worse during, um, And in trying to, to go back to what you were saying about the stigma piece, there's this term malingering that's used a lot in the military. Malingering is actually punishable by the UCMJ, which is like the, the, the governing, one of the sets of governing laws, the Uniform Code of Military Justice of the military. And malingering, you know, for those that don't know the meaning, it's when you're faking an illness, like you pretend you're sick because you don't want to go to work. And so um, that's kind of where that stigma lies in the military of, you know, someone says they're having mental health issues. Well, you can't see it and you can't prove it. So are you actually having mental health issues or are you a malingerer? Mm -hmm. And so that comes up a lot. And so it makes it very hard for people that are struggling. And maybe like for me, I had um, high functioning anxiety when I was serving. And so while internally I was feeling all the physical symptoms and struggling externally, I wasn't falling apart. And, and I was actually told that at mental health once, like you're probably not going to get the help you needed, you need, because you don't look like a wreck essentially. Um, and so that's where that, where a lot of that stigma comes from among other things. Um, as far as, you know, on the other side, now that I'm out of the military, I would say that the VA definitely provides a lot more support than uh, the active duty side of things. Um, it's a little wonky in my area because I live in what's considered to be a rural area. So I would say that from people that I've talked to, the VA provides a lot more support for those who are right next to like a VA clinic and have that VA hospital right there that they can go to. Those of us in rural areas, we have to rely on what's called community care. And so now we're kind of thrust into the civilian system and have to wait on those timelines based off of civilian providers that can see us. The flaw that I would say that I see in the system with the VA from the community care standpoint is that, you know, you are at the mercy of what whoever there is in the environment. And I, I, what I've heard from talking to providers is that there's a lot of red tape for someone to be able to work with insurance that works with not only active duty, but also people on the veteran side of things. And so I would say that, you know, if we could, from a legislative standpoint or from a systemic standpoint, look at ways to reduce the red tape and the barriers to entry for therapists to be able to work with active duty and veterans alike, I think that that would solve a lot of issues. Um, but you know, one thing that really stood out to me on the VA side is that when I got screened for depression, they were like, let's do a blood test and see what your vitamin D levels look like. Because Mm -hmm. if your vitamin D levels are low, then that could be a contributing factor to depression. Active duty never even brought that up as an option. And so I I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. 
vitamin D is interesting because I think most people are deficient in it in to some degree or another. Um, I actually started taking a ton of vitamin D when COVID hit just because I was reading stuff that was saying that it's uh, very effective in helping prevent like viral respiratory illnesses and stuff like that. So I, I think vitamin D is great, but yeah, um, it's interesting that the military never even suggested that while you were serving with your, with your anxiety, the contrast there is just really interesting. Um, so you are outwardly resilient, um, and that outward resilience can create more internal havoc in your system because you're not showing that. And, and I think that's kind of common with a lot of, with a lot of mental things with people in general, like I've struggled with mental health in my life, like depression and stuff like that. But I've also been like kind of like a goofy person my whole life. So somebody thinks, oh, because you're laughing and you're, you know, having fun outwardly, you're, you're fine internally. And, uh, there's a, yeah, there's a big, uh, contrast there. And it, it's, I don't know exactly how to bridge that gap. Um, how do you, how do you bridge that? How do you, how have you learned to, I don't know, work internally and yeah, bridge that gap of like you're outwardly resilient, but something is a struggle internally. Like how have you kind of worked on that? So I think a lot of that goes back to just being honest, not only with ourselves, but for the people around us. And and it's still something that's very hard for me to do. Um, but, you know, I, I tell people all the time that we need to get beyond the conversations of, you know, ask someone how they're doing and they just say good, right? Like, let's be honest with each other. So if you are struggling with something and you're in a position where you're comfortable saying like, actually, I'm not good. Um, I'm, I'm really, I'm having a rough day today and maybe you don't have to get fully deep into like everything that's going on, but you could just be honest with people and say, I'm not good, but thank you so much for asking. Um, and I'm, again, it's something that I'm still working on myself of, you know, being more honest and, and saying how I'm feeling and telling people like, Hey, when I am not getting back to you on something, which is something I've been struggling with a lot lately is like, you know, being very overwhelmed in my head with all the tasks that I have to do and finding myself in a place where I'm not doing things. And so being honest enough to tell people like, I recognize that I am not getting these things done. Understand that in my brain, I'm working through a lot of things right now and, and taking radical responsibility for that. So I don't really struggle so much with the physical symptoms of anxiety that I used to. Medication, when I was taking it, really did help me a lot with that. Um, I'm not taking antidepressants anymore. I was taking sertraline for a bit. But I would say that now I'm in a different dynamic where I'm struggling with that handling depression and um, every once in a while anxiety, just not as bad as it was before. And then you're really just trying to like understand more of who I am now that I'm not in the military because I'm not doing the same things. I'm now a mom, I'm now running businesses and just trying to like figure out how to handle all those things. And so I think when we talk about, you know, the it, bringing the internal external, 
a lot of that has to do with just being honest with people, being honest with ourselves and in showing that little piece of humanity. Because what I found is that in being honest, most people can actually relate to me. Mm-hmm. But if I don't say something, then I'll never know if they can relate. And that can be incredibly healing for not only me, but also the person that can relate to me in that time. Because this time of year, a lot of people st- struggle with seasonal depression, but most people aren't walking around and saying, oh, yeah, I'm really depressed today because of seasonal depression. I talk to a lot of business owners who are like, I can't talk about my mental health because it's going to hurt my business. I like to take the opposite approach. And I have a lot of people on my Facebook page, for example, that hold very high positions of power in the town that I live in. And I just put out a status yesterday saying, hey, I've been really struggling lately. Um, And understand that if I'm not responding to you right away, or I'm not getting this done right away, that it's not that I'm ignoring you because people like to take things personally. It's just kind of who we are as human beings, that I am dealing with this and I am working through it. And so that radical honesty, while it can be very uncomfortable at times, and I think oftentimes we want to pull back and be like, oh, should I say that? Is that oversharing? I think that it helps us connect more as humans and it helps people feel less alone when we just say how things really are. Yeah. Uh, when I started the podcast, it's I uh, I relaunched it in August. I originally launched it in 2020, ran for 10 episodes. And it's been something that I've been trying to do more is just be more vulnerable, be more open about how I actually am. And um, because I want to build connection, I want to I want to help people as much as possible, give people insights into different perspectives. That's why I have people who are pursuing meaningful things like you on the podcast. And it's hard, like it's hard to be vulnerable and like be honest and, and tell things that, you know, people don't always like to hear, you know, like you're like a casual conversation. People say, Hey, how are you? And the typical answer is good. How are you? You know? And it's like, most of the time, the answer really isn't good. Like most people aren't just good all the time they they have things going on but our society has kind of built this atmosphere where we just kind of we have these superficial greetings where we're asking something that has like you know we're asking somebody how they're feeling but like we don't almost don't want the answer like we don't want the truth we just want that you know quick greeting like oh good you good oh cool see you later you know stuff like that so I really like that you the honesty is important to you. It's a very good thing. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh it's opened up a lot of um how do I want to word this? It, it's created more connection between a lot of people that I've met. And I I have began to appreciate the honesty between people that I've met too. People that send me an email saying, Hey, I'm so sorry I haven't gotten back to you on this because I have ADHD and I'm really struggling right now. And I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you for saying that rather than the typical like business email of, oh, the schedule's just been, you know, really busy and this and that, you know, like I appreciate someone saying, I have this, I'm struggling with this. Thank you so much for being patient with me. I will get to you when I have time. And then also, I think on the other side of things, lets us know when someone might need a little bit more support. Because when someone comes to me and says, hey, I have ADHD. I haven't gotten back to you on this. Well, maybe now I know, okay, I should 
take that extra step and follow up with them because having ADHD, maybe they'll forget. And, and it's not that they're being rude to me intentionally, but that's just something that they're struggling with and working through. So how can I support that person in a bit of a different way? And so I, I think it, it helps us just learn more about each other's needs. Um, and, it, and it takes us out of a box because yeah. the world has created this box where people feel they have to be professional. They can't let us know that we're human. We can't tell anyone we're struggling because we have to look perfect all the time. And that's not true. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, uh, honesty on the other side. So if somebody, you know, is saying, Hey, I, sorry, I haven't reached out or sorry, I haven't responded. I'm struggling in this way or that way. Um, something that I just barely learned about reading, uh, another guest's book. It was about autism, but it's common among people with ADHD. Um, so it's, people with autism and ADHD tend to have this, it's rejection sensitivity dysphoria. So it's like you interpret like things that aren't really meant to be negative towards you as way more negative than they actually are. So like somebody, you text somebody and they don't respond as soon as you think they would. And and you kind of catastrophize to some degree and like, oh, they have a problem with me now. They don't like me now. And it's something that I didn't know the name of it, but it's something I've struggled with a long time. And uh, so somebody telling you why they haven't reached out, why they haven't gotten back to you, it, it really makes a big difference on both sides of that too. Like it, it helps you understand them, but it also could help your own mental health too. You're like, okay, I was just in my head about something. Like it's not on my end. It, it's just something that, you know, they're going through some stuff and now I can relate to that person. And, um, it really goes back to that connection that you mentioned, like it really does help build that connection. And I think connection is needed now, probably more than ever. Like we have, we're more connected, but like more disconnected than ever, I think. Yeah. And if you look at the world of social media, it really is just, you know, it, you can be whoever you want to be on social media, right? So yeah. you can create that professional persona. I could go completely redo my Instagram and make it look like I'm this business professional that has everything together, has a strict schedule, show this fake morning routine, show a fake evening routine, a perfect house, but that wouldn't be true. And and I think we often forget that when we're when we only see snippets of people's lives because we live in such a different day and age, we start to form this idea of who we should be and the life that we should be living. And that's where we forget about being vulnerable. And so I really appreciate, even on a social media perspective, I like to follow people who are radically honest and vulnerable. And every once in a while, I'll, I'll go see the perfect life people because there's things we can learn from them too, right? But um, I think always remembering that we're all human and that when we're looking at someone's life through the lens of social media or going over to their house once a week, we're only seeing a very small part of who they are and we're not seeing that full person. So never forgetting that we're all human and that, you know, people are messy in their own ways, whether it be internal or external and that's okay. It's, it's what makes us beautiful and unique. Yeah, I agree. And often when we see successful people too, we tend to assume that they've just always been successful, but we disregard the fact that we're only seeing them now because they're successful 
and we haven't seen their struggles when when they had no following, no no audience to talk to and stuff like that. And um especially being in podcasting, like it's something that I have to like remind myself myself of constantly because I'm impatient. I want to just have the success that I want, but yeah, um relatable. It takes very it takes a lot of work. Um yeah. and it uh look at somebody like Joe Rogan and it's like you assume that if if he posts something like he's just getting likes and listens right away and you know when you're starting out as a podcaster it's like that's not how it is at first um but yeah so it's it's good to have that perspective and that reminder that everyone is human everyone has those same struggles yeah absolutely you you felt like that the military is going easier on people now. Like, what do you? What's your opinion of the current state of the military? Um. So you asked me earlier if I would join the military again. I would join the military that I joined in 2015 again. Mm. I would not join the military right now. And I say that coming from the perspective of you know knowing that they are offering enlistment bonuses and I could easily join the military again, get 20 K for joining and not have to go through boot camp and, and have like a, an easy fast track to military life again. Um, there's been some things that have been concerning to me over the last few years about the military that, um, that I think are really affecting their numbers now. Um, a, when you look at what happened during COVID. Mm. Um, so A, when you look at what happened during COVID, that was a huge, huge um, stain on the military, for lack of a better word. Uh, the way that the people that chose not to get the COVID vaccine were treated. Um, it wasn't really mainstream how they were treated. Yeah. So it wasn't really mainstream how they were treated, but I had friends that were treated like absolute garbage. Um, I'm actually still part of a group of people that chose to question the norm during the whole COVID era where the vaccine was a huge thing. And um, it, there were people that were ostracized, people that were told they were murdering people. Um, they were just, the way that that was handled was really horrible. And, and I could have easily been a part of that, but I separated from the military right before that. So that was one thing. Um, the other thing too is, you know, when it comes to these other equality issues, right? Like when we're talking about integrating transgender individuals into the military, um, which I want to caveat by saying, I don't have any issue with people joining the, like all kinds of people joining the military. Um, I have all kinds of friends of all kinds of backgrounds that I absolutely love and adore that have served or are serving currently. Um, but I think that there's things that they're not considering. Um, like, for example, when you're in the military together, everyone's showering together, right? Um, and, and this isn't really a topic that I've really talked about publicly before because I, I typically don't like to share my what, controversial opinions about things. But being a female in the military, I would absolutely be uncomfortable being in a shower with someone um, but it's really an uncomfortable situation in general, showering with 70 other naked women. Mm -hmm. But when you add in someone with a different anatomy into the mix like that, you know, there's there's certain things from a protection standpoint and then from a comfortability standpoint 
that haven't really been looked at from a higher government perspective. And, and I think there's things that the military could do to still be more inclusive of people if we're trying to be in a more inclusive environment. Like, you know, you could, for example, if we want to let transgender individuals join the military and be in boot camp, okay, let's talk about individual shower stalls. Let's let's give people a little bit more privacy so that people don't have to worry about things like that. Um, let's talk about, you know, with uh, with the COVID vaccinations, we have a, a policy in place for religious exemptions. Why was that completely just thrown out the window and, and not regarded? And so um, I, I think that it's affecting the future of the military heavily because I think people are starting to kind of look at the military as a whole and be like, wait a minute. I understand that when I join an organization like the military, that yes, I become a part of an organization where I no longer have an individual opinion. But when the military decided that they wanted to start to become more like corporate America, now we open the door to be more like corporate America. Well, what's corporate America doing? They're giving mental health tools to a lot of their um, employees that are in the workforce. Uh, they're giving other health tools, like cholesterol checks and um, and access to to things to make sure they're a healthy human beings. Um, they're making sure that in being inclusive in the workplace by allowing all people of all backgrounds that they are they're considering what people's needs are and making sure that people are comfortable in the workplace. Um, the COVID thing was kind of weird across all sectors, so I can't really compare that, but. You know, there's there's things that are happening in the military that I think they haven't fully figured out yet that I think yeah. is going to fully affect the force of the military until the people at the top can sit down at the table and be like, okay, let's let's kind of start from scratch here. Let's figure out how we can be inclusive of people. Let's figure out if we want to continue on this being like corporate America track. How can we effectively implement that into the military? without losing the sense of who we are as the military, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I've been in, uh, I was in corporate America for the last 10 years. I'm not anymore. Um, and there are quite a few parallels like the, the COVID vaccine. I think that the, the way that that whole thing went down, um, I think that's a stain on corporate America as well. A lot of people lost their jobs, including me for refusing the vaccine. Um, and I was working for one of the largest private companies in the U.S. at that time. And, you know, I had friends that worked there and um, I didn't feel so bad for myself. Like, I, I'm happy with the decision I made, but who I felt really bad for was uh, particularly single mothers, because I knew a few single mothers who did not want to take the vaccine. I think at least one of them ended up getting uh, either medical or religious exemption. But I think another one that I knew ended up caving in and going along with it. And I just think it's horrible that corporate America did that to people. Um, just a complete disregard for bodily autonomy. And then uh, I worked for another company, Workwave, and I, I questioned their, it was called diversity, equity, and, and inclusion. And I questioned what 
they were doing there. Because when I was reading all their stuff, I'm like, well, I was familiar with the Civil Rights Act because of the vaccine stuff with the other job that I had. And I had read a bit of it. And when I was reading this company's diversity, equity, and inclusion policy, I'm like, wait a second. It, it sounds like you guys are saying to focus on race, to focus on sexuality, to focus on these things, like to hire people specifically because that's what you consider diversity. And that just, it seems like it, it's in violation of what the civil, the letter of the law of the civil, civil rights act. And, um, yeah, so it, it does sound like the military has kind of been parallel to corporate America in recent years, which is, I don't know. I just don't think that's, I don't think what corporate America is doing is right either, but I really don't think the military should be following suit with that. Yeah, I think there's a reason that the two sectors were separate, right? And, and yeah. why there's certain things that, yes, like let's let's make sure we're being inclusive of people. That's a good thing, right? Yeah, um, let but let's also make sure that that we're still following what the military is supposed to be. And I don't know that the military really knows if they know what the military is supposed to be because the history of it was war for so many years. And now the dynamic and landscape of war has changed. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not like World War II. So what do you do with that, you know? Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. My my grandfather fought in World War II and I've I've read a little bit about it. I didn't I regret that I didn't talk to him more about it while he was alive, but I just my maturity level was not there and um my interest in history wasn't quite there yet, but after reading about it now, it's just interesting. Like I didn't until recently in in the last 10 years, I really didn't understand that our military was not ready for World War II until World War II was, until we were attacked by Japan, actually, um, until Pearl Harbor. And then there was like this sudden rush to get the military ready. And, you know, we were, we were like the moral leaders of the world for a long time. And, um, and we had like an enemy at every time we, we had, Nazi Germany, and then we had Russia in the Cold War, and I think the landscape has changed a bit. And now, I don't know. I feel like there's a, a lack of direction. I do feel like we have leaders that just want war. Like I, I think, unfortunately, I think some leaders don't value human life. And this isn't just in America. This is all over the world. Like I think, when people are in positions where they can make one decision that can end up costing a bunch of lives. I think sometimes people lose their sense of humanity to some degree. Like they, they're like, well, the reality is like in high up leadership positions, like decisions you affect, like there are certain decisions where like people are going to be harmed in some way or another regardless of whatever decision you make. And I think there, some people develop like a coldness, like a just, yeah, a lack of humanity at a certain point. And it's, it's just sad, in my opinion. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think when someone's working in a higher up position, like in the white house or in the Pentagon, I don't think that they ever really fully get the picture of what's going on with the people that are actually in the thick of it. The people that are boots on the ground that have to go out to war. You don't see the higher up going out there and experiencing that. So what's interesting to me is that the people that are making the important decisions aren't actually involved in what they're affecting. Yes, they can go out and they can ask questions all day, but I say all the time that when the higher up comes to a military base, all those questions that people are asking, they're pre-vetted by the commands because the commands want to make sure that a stupid, quote unquote, stupid question isn't getting asked. And so there's no real transparency and vulnerability within that gap that exists between the person that is making the decision and the person that is directly affected by that decision. And so, you know, I think it starts there as saying like, hey, allow allow people to just ask their questions yeah. and and let them know that there aren't stupid questions. If someone legitimately thinks that a change needs to happen, like the hair, I'll use hair as an example. For years, black women in the military were saying, hey, my hair is different than white women's hair. What can I do? Can I have locks? That would help out a lot. Because if I can have my hair in locks, then when I'm gone on these 11 month deployments, I don't have to worry about the hair routine or making sure I have my products or maybe looking unkempt according to the military standards, which for a long time was a sleek, a sleek bun. Then yeah. a lot of black women couldn't easily do that with their hair. It took years to even get from the people that were directly affected up to the higher ups, someone had to create, I believe, like a whole YouTube PowerPoint thing explaining that it's not unprofessional and that it's okay because it's a different, it's a different cultural, different um, type of hair. I mean, different, it's different altogether, right? Um, and, and you could use that example as really anything, even war, right? Because the guys who are boots on the ground, they're not the same as the guy that's sitting in the office and the guy that's sitting in the office. Yeah. Maybe he served in world war two or Vietnam war, but that was a different dynamic and landscape than today. So you really can't even compare those two. And so, you know, it's, there's definitely a huge gap that exists that something needs to change with that for people to make sound decisions in my opinion. Yeah. And I would say that ability to ask questions and, and stuff like that is important. Um, I don't know the history of black women in, in the military, but I would imagine leadership positions were not very common until maybe 20 years ago or so. I, yeah, I don't even know. I know it was, I know that, you know, women in the military in general, right, weren't really like heavily integrated until yeah. it wasn't that long ago yeah. that like women could even fully serve in the military, um, much less black women in the military. Um, I know that even today, there's not a ton of women that can say they held a significant leadership position in the military. So I think it's still an ever-changing landscape. Yeah, and and you shouldn't have to wait until you have representation or representation in larger numbers in leadership to be able to have your voice heard. And I know military is really big on chain of command. Like you, you go to your whoever's in charge of you and then they take it up the chain but i think there's pretty pretty obvious problems and with that system because 
people don't want to bring people don't even always want to bring their own problems up the chain of command, let alone somebody else's problems, because you know, there's there's people that just want to look good and they feel like that they're not gonna look good if they bring up problems, you know, like there's a you know, you want your life, you want your boss's life to be as easily as possible to make yourself look good. And if you're bringing him problems, him or her problems, then, you know, then you're kind of a problem for the, for your boss. And yeah, yeah I think there's some problems with having to go through the chain of command for everything. And then well, to it's like the game of telephone, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, a game of telephone where you don't want to like even right. worse than telephone. You don't want to relay the message because who wants to relay negative information to their boss? Right. Right. And then with, with the deaths, it's, or, or with, yeah, with, with death and people being kind of like cold about death in high leadership positions, it's, there's this weird, like if you see somebody die, that's traumatizing. That's horrible. Um, if you see a group of people die, also horrible. But when you when it's just a number on a piece of paper or in a mm -hmm. email or something like that, there's it, it's just different for for people who only see it as a number rather than humans. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that's what we're seeing right now. I mean, a little bit of a different topic, but not really with like that whole Israel conflict, right? Is people yeah. are starting to post the actual humanity of it on the internet. And, and it's different because it's not just seeing a number on a piece of paper. And, uh, and it's hard to see stuff like that online. But I also think that's where people start to understand that it's about more than just reading a report that says, oh, there were 15 casualties today because, yeah. okay, well, casualty A is kind of a dampened down word to say yeah. that there was death or murders or whatever. But even with suicides in the military, like if, if they were releasing video footage of these people taking their lives, people would be more outraged. Now, obviously we hit a fine line with that because families don't always want that stuff out on the internet because it opens up wounds, yeah. fresh wounds. And it's, it's very disrespectful, but at the same time, you're right. You know, when, when it's just a report and numbers, it's easier to be like, Oh, well, this is only going to take 10 people's lives versus 20 people's lives. So this is okay. And, um, and, and someone has to live with that decision. And, um, and it is, I can imagine a very hard position to be in being a leader of the military, but yeah, I think there's things that could be different. Yeah. With like the Israel stuff, the Israel and Palestine stuff, like it's uncomfortable seeing the images, seeing, seeing actually what's happening, but, I think it's needed in a certain sense, like, um, especially if you go back 20 years before the internet was really popular and people would get their news from the newspaper or, or just the TV and you would, and corporate media still does this. Like they'll use very specific words to either get a reaction or to minimize what's actually happening, like to kind of hide the reality of things. So I think sometimes seeing that raw imagery and 
raw reality is is needed for people to really understand what's going on yeah yeah absolutely and um it'll be interesting to see i think we're already kind of seeing it talking about like the israel and palestine thing people stepping up and taking action more than you typically see people step up and try to take action because like ukraine that whole war they didn't really show the raw images of that like they have this israel palestine thing um the u.s wars and conflicts were thousands of people whose lives have been lost you you don't really see it you just you read the reports and yes you're, you're right when you say certain words are used in certain ways certain images are used in certain ways it's all psychology yeah. it's been that way for years this is nothing new propaganda psychology being used in the government to elicit certain responses that dates back years and years it's nothing new by any means we're just using it in different ways and so um what i wish we would do as a nation is use the psychology for good yeah because it could be used for good we just don't because good news doesn't sell like bad news does so. yeah yeah i agree to to kind of go off the the word usage um there's an old Dave Chappelle stand up skit where he's talking about this it was during you know when we were in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and he's like yeah they don't even call them people they call them insurgents you know and it it really does go off of yeah it there's very specific words used to paint a certain image or to gloss over that reality a bit something else uh when it comes to war, the landscape in the U.S. has changed a little bit. Um, private contractors are increasingly used, and I think this—I think a lot of that started or exploded a bit during Bush's tenure in office, uh, uh, the younger Bush. And when you were in the military, did you come into contact with contractors often, or? I mean, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. We we actually worked directly alongside contractors um, at my command that I was at. They were very heavily integrated in. And you'll see this in a lot of military bases is, you know, you walk in a hangar and um, there's mostly military, but there are quite a few contractors and they work alongside the military very much hand in hand. Do they have the same rules? They don't. They have more freedoms because they're civilians, so they can't be held accountable by the UCMJ. So they're under the rules of whatever company, Boeing or, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the other company that was the contractor where I worked at. Um, right, and then likewise, like if the military had a day off, they would still have to work. Um, so they kind of fell under their own umbrella. We just, we shared the the knowledge base mainly, and they kind of still had the same roles. Like, there was the avionics guys that would work there or gals that would work there. Um, so like I could easily have gotten out of the military and just gone to be a contractor yeah. and worked the same job at a higher pay rate than I was making in the military and literally just done the exact same thing without all the extra bullshit. So, you know, obviously when you're serving active duty, you've got collateral duties, you've got to stand watches, which is like a, an extra thing. Um, aside from the job, um, and there's just extra things that come with being in the military, and the contractors don't have that. Yeah, I think there's a bit of sleight of hand going on too. Like, um, my understanding is if if a contractor dies, it's not reported the same way that if somebody in the military dies. So it's like 
when when we're in a conflict and we have military personnel die, that military that number of deaths is usually just active military. They're not including people who are contractors who often are ex-military who yeah. are essentially military, just not technically active military. Yeah, so there's yeah. kind of some deception there going on yeah. from what I understand. And, and, and I'm not sure what the rules are regarding that. I guess I've never asked that, com- I've never had that conversation before, but um, yeah, I could see it happening for sure. Yeah. Well, what do you feel like, what, what's something that you would like people in the military or getting out of the military, if you can relay a message to them, what would it be? I would say that military is not you. It's not who you are. A lot of us join, and this this applies to even people who aren't in the military, but I'm going to speak specifically to those who are getting out. Um, Because a lot of us form an identity with our job, whether we think we did or not. I was one of those who thought that I didn't. Um, A commonality between a lot of people that I see transitioning out of the military is that the freedom that comes with the other side, quote unquote, um, is very overwhelming. And it's because whether you were that person that formed an identity, your job was you, you were the Navy, Marine Corps, Army, Coast Guard, whatever then the military still changed you. Um, that experience, that profound experience, going through things with groups of people, learning a new skill, changing completely who you are, it changed you. And it's important to recognize that and give yourself grace for that. Um, because I did not. And it took me a long time to realize that I was not going back to the person that I was before the military. I'm a different person now. And I have to figure out who that person is. And where my place is in this world. Um, and so that's probably the biggest piece of advice that I would give is, you know, A, if you're getting out of the military, start to prep for that next part, the next chapter before the day you get out of the military. But for people that are still serving, understand that there's so much more to you than your job. And your job really is just that a job. Um, you you are still a person and that person matters. Awesome. I love it. Um you're a reader. I would love to hear books that you recommend to people in general. They can be directed toward military or anything that you feel you'd like to share, anything you've read that you think people should read. So um, let me think what I'm so right now, I've got like 10 different books that I'm trying to read through. I was really big in the John C. Maxwell books as far as like relating back to the military. Um, The Twenty One Irrefutable, I think it's called Laws of Leadership. I'm mixing up name book titles in my head right now, but really any of the John C. Maxwell books, I would recommend for people that are in the military. Why? Because when I started to read those books, is when I realized that I could have applied these leadership principles when I was still serving, and it would have made a world of a difference in who I was as a leader. Um, from a personal development standpoint, The Four Agreements is a really good book. Um, the You Are a Badass books. Um, I can't remember the name of the author right now, but uh, I think it's Jen Sincero. Um, for all my women in the military, that was a really, really good book that really changed my life. And then uh, David Goggins' book. Mm. Um, I absolutely loved reading his story. And he just came out with a new book that I have not read yet, but 
David Goggins is, is definitely a incredible example of what human potential looks like and, um, and what we are capable of. And so that was very life-changing for me as well. Um, some other recommendations that I would love to make outside of the book world, because I know not, not everyone can sit down and read a book. Um, yeah. so for some of us, it's harder than others, but, um, the impact theory podcast, I absolutely love that one. And then recently started listening to diary of a CEO and that one's a really good one too. So for my people that listen to podcasts and don't read books, definitely check those two out for personal development. Awesome. Yeah, I, I heard you mention impact theory on one of your podcasts and I followed that and I plan to listen to some of it. So yeah, yeah, it's some great information. I think the more we can learn about ourselves as human beings and Tom Bilyeu does such a great job of bringing on guests who can teach us tips and tricks, teach us, you know, uh, to learn more about ourselves as humans. Uh, it just it helps us be better in general because we understand more about who we are. Yeah. I agree. And I mean, it seems like something you're pursuing with your podcast and it's something that I want with my podcast. I think the more perspective we gain and myself included, like I want to gain perspective and this is just my way of allowing other people to come on that journey with me and, you know, see life through yeah. other people's eyes. Absolutely. It's a great way to do it. Yeah. Well, Rachel, it's been amazing talking to you before we wrap up. Do you want to give people a way to find your podcast and anything else you want to share? Yeah. So my website is www.ysdeh.com. That stands for your story doesn't end here. And there are links to the Spotify and Apple versions of my podcast through there. You can also find me on iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, which I hear is transitioning to YouTube. So I don't know how much longer that's going to exist in the world. Um, and then a few other random podcast platforms that I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but I am out there. Your story doesn't end here. The military mental health podcast. Um, if you want to follow me on social media platforms as well, it's typically just Y S D E H or on Instagram, it's underscore Y S D E H. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Uh, Rachel Oswald is my name. Um, and then I can send you the links to those things too, yeah, but yeah. everything should be linked through my website if you can't find me individually, but feel free to reach out and connect. Um, if you're a military veteran or in the mental health space and want to be on the show, please feel free to reach out to me. Or if you just want to connect with someone, please reach out to me as well. Um, not always the greatest at responding right away, but I do my best. So, um, but please, please don't let that deter you from reaching out because um, like we talked about connecting is so important in this world on this landscape so thank you so much for having me on the show i appreciate it yeah thank you so much it was a pleasure talking to you you as well thank you for tuning in to this episode of thoughtfully mindless if our conversations resonate with you consider leaving a five-star rating on spotify apple podcasts or your streaming platform of choice your ratings help us grow and reach more listeners don't hesitate to spread the word about our podcast it's one of the best ways you can support us. I'm always eager to hear from you. So find me on Twitter at TMConvos or follow us on Instagram at ThoughtfullyMindless for a peek behind the scenes and more thoughtful content. And if you're looking for additional ways to support the show, visit FractalZoo.net where you can find exclusive t-shirts and apparel. Each purchase contributes directly to the podcast and allows us to keep bringing you content that matters. Thank you once again for lending us your ears. Until next time, stay thoughtfully mindless.